I am so excited to be here with uh, Gabriel Rockhill. Okay, Gabriel Rockhill is the founding director of the Critical Theory Workshop. Um, he's also professor of philosophy at Villanova University, the author and or editor of nine books, and the one in progress uh, that I just saw, Gabriel, that I think is of most interest uh, today, is the your I, I assume tentatively titled "The Intellectual World War: The CIA's Failed Attempt to Kill the Idea of Communism." So that's uh, pretty cool. That's right, right on with what I want to talk about. So the reason I wanted to interview uh, Gabriel, I'm just talking directly to my listeners now, is uh, YouTube just put this. Um, video in front of me at uh, uh, the algorithm and it was one of these lectures uh, from the critical work theory workshop called toward a counter history of French theory. And uh, so I just watched that video and it was like, you know, in form, you know, it's just like a typical your typical academic lecture, you know, any academic uh, has seen hundreds of these types of lectures, but the content was like, stranger than fiction. So the idea that like US foreign policy, in extends to trying to influence what seems like obscure and inaccessible academic theories. It's like kind of hard to believe. But, you know, if you're a listener to the show, you're familiar with the idea that imperialists try to get everywhere, <laughs> make sure they leave no stone unturned. So um, but, you know, I, I will recommend that lecture too. Uh, went either whether you're done this interview or you want to pause this and go and listen to that or um, any of these other works by Gabriel. So Gabriel, thank you. That was a long intro. Thanks for having me on. It's a real pleasure. <laughs> so, Gabriel, you run this critical theory workshop, which you uh, is described as an international school for transdisciplinary, cross-cultural, and committed research seeking to bring affordable education with real use value to a broad public. But, like the the name of the workshop, the critical theory workshop, it suggests that you you know you're talking about these theories that we're going to talk about, and and you you seem to know these theories, you know these French so-called critical theory that we're going to focus on today in a way that's not like, oh, uh, I'm, I want to know my enemy. So I want to know your, I want to know your personal relationship to these theories and, and how you got into them and, and kind of start there. Yeah, I, you know, I'm a farm boy from Kansas who grew up working construction. So there was nothing organic in my immediate environment that would connect my mind to the world of French theory but I wanted to get off the farm and Wait, where I, are you uh, from in Kansas Two uh, a couple of years ago I was in Salina Kansas I spent a whole summer there uh, northeastern Kansas okay uh, so not Salinas but uh yeah <laughs> cool okay go on sorry <laughs> and so so anyway I wanted to get off the farm and I was you know I have a quick mind was good at school and pretty clearly identified as my father told me you know you should study hard so you don't have to work hard like me I took that pretty seriously and I wanted to study theory that was somehow practically relevant because I was always attracted to social transformation and fighting for equality and justice. And the coordinates of my intellectual world, this was in the 90s, were determined largely by what was the hottest commodity on the global market and what was being put forth as the most radical. So in my undergraduate years, I was exposed to French theory and thought, well, these are the smartest philosophers and theorists in the world. They're doing something radical and new that's never been done before. I should learn French and go and study with them because that's what's, you know, the, the most important thing globally. And so that's what I did. I got a scholarship 
uh, after undergraduate and I went to do a master's degree with Lucy Rigori. I then continued studying and was one of uh, Jacques Derrida's last students uh, because I did a master's with him at the OHSS in, in central Paris. Then I went on to do my PhD with Paul, uh, not with uh, Paul Ricoeur, fortunately, with uh, Alain Badiou. And it was, I arrived in Paris, basically, you know, I got a scholarship and then I, you know, I come from a working class family. So I, I worked in order to support myself and I wanted to stay there. And so I was a deep believer in the cause, so to speak. I was believing, I believed in the ideas. I believed that they were going to solve, you know, problems, uh, serve social justice in some capacity. So I, you know, studied with Derrida. And then at the same time, there was, it was the kind of tail end of the grand era of French theory. So I took classes with Paul Ricoeur, uh, with Etienne Balibar, with Jean-François Lyotard, with Julia Kristeva. The list goes on. Any of the ones who were still alive when I arrived in Paris in the 90s, I went to their seminars, I went to their lectures and their conferences. So your whole goal was like to find the most radical thing and like, yeah, because I, I, I had a moment. I mean, did you have a moment like this? I had a moment when I was like 18 years old and I was in the library of like the University of Toronto and I just was like, oh, you know what? I bet the best books are the ones that these professors have put on reserve. So I started looking on the reserve uh, shelves and I found Chomsky's book, uh, Deterring <laughs> Democracy. And I was like, deterring democracy? Who deters democracy? That's weird. And I, I was living like in the suburbs with my parents and I just like read the book and I got home super late because I was just sitting in the library. You couldn't take it out on loan. So I was just sitting in the library reading this book until really late and then I came home. And I was like, oh, my God, who's Chomsky? What is this? So did you have like a moment like that with a French theory? Like, is that? Um... Well, uh, yeah, I was attracted to what was, you know, put forth as being the most sophisticated and the most radical. And mm -hmm. so in the early 90s, at least in my circles, that was Derrida. And I remember reading the books in English, not understanding them, having to read Heidegger and Kant. So I did the whole history of Western philosophy in a very serious way. Obviously learned French, but then since Derrida also at least feigned to know to a certain extent, I mean, I think he did know German, but he dabbled in ancient Greek and Latin. So I studied those languages too, because I thought, well, if this is the smartest person and he knows these languages, I have to know these four languages and plus English and then know the history of Western philosophy. And that's like yeah, a so real classical education. Like that's, you know, that's what they, that's what they always, for hundreds of years, that's the idea, like Latin, Greek, French, yeah. German philosophy. Yeah. yeah. No, absolutely. And, and I was very dedicated to that style of education. And I spent years in the National Library in Paris studying all of those things and, you know, deeply believing in them. Uh, well, at the same time, there were some shifts that took place because, uh, you know, Derrida's discourse, when you compare what he says to what he analyzes, I began discovering contradictions that he would say something happened in a particular text and it didn't happen in the original version of that text, like his interpretation of Descartes, for instance. And then he would talk about these texts as if they were, you know, sacred scripture. But I looked into the history of the uh, Plato's corpus, for instance, and we have nothing from the hand of Plato. And so there's no material history of the text. So why would you take what Plato wrote as sacred lore when he actually, we have nothing from what he wrote. And he said in his seventh letter that he never put his true thoughts into writing anyway. 
And Derrida wasn't dealing with these larger questions uh, of both the kind of hermeneutic questions, but then the larger questions of the material historicity of texts. And so that led me to then explore more broadly the work of Bourdieu and the Bourdieusian sociologists who are very present in Paris. I was increasingly attracted to the kind of cultural Marxist scene, so Badiou, uh, Ranciere is kind of coming out of the Foucaultian heritage and so a materialist at a certain level, but an anti-communist anarchist, uh, very much like Foucault. And so th th that was the so world. Wait, that you I said cultural Marxist. So uh, just where I'm coming, I'm coming from like a very naive place, right? Like from the point of view of the theory, like I, 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 did, I did science, you know, I did physics as an undergrad and then I did history as an undergrad. And then I like continued in, in on the science path and like my politics is all like Chomsky. And then I've re really naively re started reading Marxist texts like Lenin and, and Marx himself, just reading it. Like, again, I'm following the way that you're following. Like you actually did what Derrida said, <laughs> you know, he did, right? Like know the languages and stuff, which maybe he didn't actually do. And I, I'm kind of the same way because Chomsky is just like, whatever, you can read anything, just go read it. And so that's, I'm still kind of doing that. But when you say um, these, the when you said that you discovered that there's no actual material of Plato, it's like all we have is... Um, all we have is like stuff other people wrote about Plato and copies well, of quotes. Well, we have manuscripts that go back to, I believe the 11th century, right? right? We don't have them that go back to Plato's time period. So that's the oldest thing we have about Plato? Yeah, we have wow. texts that have been, you know, if you look at the history of how those manuscripts were handed down, they were recopied by hand for, for decades and centuries. And so obviously, and, and there are also texts that didn't match up, right? So there are certain versions of Plato's dialogues that don't match with other ones. And then they were formalized in the 19th century. The latter half of the 19th century in Germany, there was an attempt to establish the definitive corpus of Plato, right? At the height of industrial capitalism, when intellectual property law and identifying what the commodity was that was saleable and who owned that commodity was so important. And so that relationship between author and text really became uh, oh you know, institutionalized in the, in the 19th century. The other thing is from when you're like, on, like doing online stuff or podcasting or whatever, and you're on the left, it's like, there's this, there's this, like the idea that cultural Marxism, that's like something Jordan Peterson accuses other yeah. people of being, but you're saying cultural Marxism is an actual, there is an actual theory of culture called cultural Marxism. Yeah, what people will identify as cultural Marxism is a Europe, largely European phenomenon, but then of course it also did spread to the US and Canada and other places that were uh, that are highly Eurocentric in their intellectual orientation. And cultural Marxism is usually kind of identified as a split away from actually existing socialism. And so Lenin, the Bolsheviks, uh, the Third International, and all of that is often classified as kind of Eastern Marxism because they're the Marxists who changed the world and are anti-colonial and anti-imperialist. Whereas cultural Marxism or what some people call Western Marxism uh, kind of threw up its hands and said, well, there's no revolution in the Western world. So therefore we're gonna focus on culture and cultural analysis. So if it be Adorno and Horkheimer, or if it be, uh, you know, Bedu self-identifies as a Maoist and we'd have to go through and talk about individual cases. But I think that it is fair to say that there's a general tendency within Marxist intellectuals in the Western world 
to be much more focused on kind of culture in the intellectual world. And they often tend to denigrate actually existing socialism. So they're usually either Trotskyists or cultural Marxists in the sense that they're not, in, they're not, they're more interested in interpreting the world than changing it. Let's put it that way. Okay. Domenico Lasordo has an yeah, excellent Yeah, I was just going to say, I know a little yeah, bit about Western, Western Marxism because he's got that book, Class Struggle uh, by Domenico Lasordo. So there it is. And, and this book, <laughs> uh, it's available in Spanish, but it's going to oh, hopefully come out in English. Okay, awesome. Yeah, yeah. that's Lasordo's definitely changed my life. So, okay. So wait, you're, you're, um, you're, not, you're finding anomaly. Let's like, according to like the Thomas Kuhn, uh, you know, structure of scientific revolutions, um, book, uh, you, you're going through this process. You're finding anomalies in these theories and you're finding these things. And, uh, so let's, let's pick up from there in your story. Yeah. So, after a few years in the in the Derrida circles, you know, attending a seminar weekly and really being in the the mix of it, I began identifying these contradictions and then wanting to resolve them. And so I started studying the history of the Platonic corpus that we were just talking about and have written on the history of that uh, the constitution of those texts. And I was increasingly attracted to what I would now frame as the kind of historical social sciences. So both at the level of history with the Annal School and then in sociology, particularly kind of Bourdieuian sociology, I ended up basically doing two masters in philosophy and then I was doing a PhD in philosophy with Badiou, but simultaneously in the French system, I did a master's in the social sciences because in the social sciences, at least you're explaining real things and you can test theories and things like this. At, up to a certain point. <laughs> but then of course I started encountering other contradictions like Bourdieu thinks and argues that there's an autonomy of spheres and that art is somehow separate from the economy and politics and other such things, which is obviously that's, not true. That's usually and, an excuse to like not, you know, boycott Israel or something. <laughs> it's usually yeah, where that they comes smuggle that stuff in. Art is different. Art is separate. Yeah. Yeah, it has its, it follows its own laws that aren't somehow the laws of, uh, of capitalism. Yeah. So obviously it's the bourgeois ideology of art. Right. And so in short then, I, you know, I think at base, I was always a materialist. And so materialism allowed me to test claims and find out what was true. And so I shifted into the historical social sciences, but was still working with particularly Badiou, Ranciere and Balibar, uh, completed my dissertation and, you know, uh, continue to do things within the philosophic world, but I was always situating philosophy in relationship to the larger material world. And so I didn't self-describe or think of myself as a Marxist at that point in time. In fact, Marxism for me was this kind of cultural Marxism that said a lot of loosey-goosey and kind of incorrect things about art and culture. And right. And, and I bet they were low key. Everything you were reading is sort of anti-Marxist, right? Like I, I had that experience where whatever they're like, oh, man, and then there's a stupid Marxist who just say the same thing over and over or whatever. There's all these kind of backhanded. So you, yeah. you kind of absorb that, right? They never make a systematic attack on it or rarely, but by these kind of snarky things that they say, you get this feeling like, oh, this is probably not worth hundred percent. Anti-communism is the air that we breathe within the capitalist academy. Yeah. And I was in France in the 90s. So this was the twilight of communist consciousness. You had the collapse of the Soviet Union. Then you have Derrida 
quite disingenuously publishing all these things about the specters of Marx and whatnot, basically just making Marx into another discursive commodity that we can play with and explore and constantly resignify. And so Marxism was not something that anyone in my circles was saying was, was great or worthy of study or other such things. On the contrary, in fact, I never even took a class on Marx. There were no classes on Marx. The closest that I got, because I took a Bajou seminar for, for years, and he's a self-declared Marxist, but he's also a self-declared Platonist. And so Platonists believe that there are, in metaphysics, that there are pure forms of ideas. So that's like I mean, the superstition, cave. basically. That's like the cave and the the shadows on the cave, and there's For like instance, an ideal form. That that's a yeah. that's Plato. Yeah, I mean, basically, he's an idealist. Yeah who traffics in certain forms of materialism, but is not really a materialist himself. And what I mean by that is not what he says, because people can say anything when they're playing with discourse, but what he does, his own intellectual practice is idealist through and through. And so, although he traffics or plays in certain forms of uh, materialist analysis, and so in that regard, I didn't want to be like that. I found Bedu some of Bedu's writings to be uh, very, how to put it, it just wasn't solid work. It wasn't materialist research that was uh, evidence-based. And so, but I ended up getting a job in French theory, I should add. <laughs> so here I am teaching French theory. I got a job, you know, 12 years ago at Villanova University to do French theory at a place that was known for Derrida scholarship, Derrida and religion of all things. And I continued to, I kind of began focusing much more explicitly on what I was interested in is, well, if all of these philosophers have this one particular way of doing philosophy in which they sit down and they analyze texts devoid of context and have this relationship to a canonical body of texts, my primary research question became, well, how did that come about? What were the material forces that made philosophy into the individual interpretation of canonic Western texts? And that was the first book that I wrote, uh, which, really charted out how we got here in short. But that was the beginning of, of course, a much larger, I think, intellectual itinerary where I also then began exploring art and culture, how uh, cultural products in general are fabricated. And I, I think I can say now, if I can jump up to the present really quickly, looking back on sure. this, <laughs> I recognize that subjectively or personally, I was drawn to, I want a materialist analysis that explains something about the world so that I can change it. And I wanted it to be radical because I wanted it to serve some form of social justice mission, equality, peace, you know, whatever you want to call it. And the problem was that what was on offer by the system and by what I would today call the intellectual apparatus. So the entire system of intellectual production, circulation and reception what was on offer was not historical materialist analysis. What was on offer was a very trendy form of discursive idealism in which you would learn sophisticated language games and different ways of speaking, and you'd constantly problematize, which is basically a form of skepticism. You say, oh, well, Chomsky says this, but how does he know this? And you know, these types of things. What is justice? Are you sure that that's what justice is? Because the Greeks said this and Heidegger said this about the Greeks. So that's that encounter, if you will, between my subjective experience and the objective social world and the intellectual apparatus led to enormous contradictions and unbelievable frustrations on my own part. 
And then I just began studying the apparatus. I wanted to understand this system of intellectual production, circulation, and reception that made a young, you know, naive but well-meaning kid from Kansas study Derrida and learn all of these sophisticated things about French theory instead of being trained to understand the world. But like what you yeah. and what you said though, like it's it's partly that it's like not accessible, but it's but you know, I, I thought a lot about the inaccessibility of academic theory and these writers are among the least accessible uh, I find you know it's it's um it's very hard for to just pick up a a book by Derrida and have any idea what he's talking about it's an important part of the ideology actually because it's very much I've done you know some sociology of religion and it's very much like the discourse of the initiated and if you want to be a priest or a bishop or a pope, you know, whatever you want to be in the religious hierarchy, you have to spend years learning the internal language. And when you're exposed to it, I remember the first time I was in Derrida's seminar, and it was obviously all in French, and there was all of this vocabulary that was so sexy and sophisticated and people saying these refined things and a rhetoric that Derrida had perfected. He's very, very good at rhetoric. And that keeps people out. It creates the illusion that the people who are part of that discourse are in the know, just like in a religious sect. And it also plays an ideological function because it structures our time economy. So if you want to criticize, coming back to what you said earlier, if you want to criticize Marx, you don't even have to read Marx, let alone Lenin and Mao and Ho Chi Minh and everybody else. You just say, oh, well, you know, good on paper, bad in practice, or, you know, whatever. Uh, Communism doesn't work. Gulags leads to the gulag. Yeah. yeah, it's all for white men. I love that one, right? That's like uh, the, the, <laughs> the source of theory that made the most important and significant anti-colonial revolutions in the world. And it's all just for white men. <laughs> but so but that- the accessibility, just, just to say, like the accessibility, I think, is a problem. And, and I think a lot of it is like what you said. And I think that the, I think that in the kind of American uh, Academy or like the North American Academy, and you probably know more about the schools of thought, but like mathematics is used in that same way or like economics and mathematics. It's like, you can't comment on the economy unless you understand these economic charts and equations, which are again, designed not just for obscurity, but also to make you not understand the economy. But like, there's also the thing that you said, the second thing that you said, the part of it of, you know, academic, this is why people hate academics, the inaccessibility, but also like not taking a stand on anything. So it's like, oh, what is power? What is torture? What is wrong? What is right? What is imperialism? Everything's imperialism. Nothing's imperialism. Nobody's imperialist. How do we know? And it's like, that's why people hate academics. Cause it's like, you go there, you go to an academic. Cause it's like, Hey, you spend a lot of time reading and thinking, give me some kind of answer about what, what to think about this. And they say, well, gee, you know, welcome to my seminar where I'm going to, you know, turn you around in knots. And I think we can talk a bit about Foucault now because I, I pulled this quote out of one of your um, papers on uh, Foucault, the false radical, the faux radical. <laughs> um, and you say, you know, Foucault openly embraced academic specialization, the intellectual tailorism that's integral to institutionalized knowledge production under capital. He also encouraged intellectuals to focus on the anonymous, decentralized microphysics of power in their local contexts, and thereby abandon the project of elucidating and fighting against the macro physics of power. Um, operative in global class struggle. And in this way, with remarkably few exceptions, he gave carte blanche 
to the major imperial projects of his lifetime. So like what I what I see there is also like by doing this kind of, you know, what is this? What does this mean? What does that mean? And doing it to every idea, whether they're an emancipatory or an oppressive idea, you're actually making more space for oppression and imperialism because de facto they're going to win unless they're challenged. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, maybe two things that would be helpful just to frame the, the conversation, because there's a lot packed into what you just asked, is that on the one hand, one of the dominant ideologies of the professional managerial class as it manifests itself in the intelligentsia is idealism that the driving force behind the world is ideas and ways of speaking and discourse. And opposed to that is an orientation that is materialist. And materialists want to understand they're not empiricists. So it's not just we're going to count these facts out and be bean counters or things like this. It's that we want to take the facts from the world and situate them in a system of explanation that allows us to understand them and ultimately to intervene in that world in order to modify it. That's what materialism is kind of in a nutshell. And so I couldn't agree more that one of the major problems with academics in general is, at least within the humanities, very rampant idealism. And so welcome to my seminar. It's more complicated, it's more sophisticated. What is power? We have to read Hobbes before we can even begin to speak. Or the other things that they do is they just ask questions, right? Uh, what is this? What is that? What is this? What is Palestine? Uh, is it a place? Is it a thing? Is it a people? Um, and, and Derrida, of course, was, was really perfected this. Uh, the endless interrogation where you just defer signification and you never actually get to anything that means anything. So I just wanted to quickly highlight that. But in relationship to Foucault, you know, he's somewhat of a complicated figure. And one of the reasons that I focused on him in the specific piece that you're referencing is that Foucault has idealist elements in the work that he does, but he traffics in materials, right? So he creates the sense that he's talking about real history and real things and he's in the archive and um, demonstrating these things. But the catch is that his accounts of history do not accord with the scientific historical materialists, materialist accounts that we have. In fact, they're pitted directly against them. So, uh, you know, Foucault tried to demonstrate that Marx and Marxist political economy kind of shares the same epistem as bourgeois political economy, which at one level could be true, and you know, Marx and uh, Engels in particular wrote about this, but the reason that Foucault does that is to try to reduce Marxism sim simply to discourse, to make it into a set of ideas. And he ignores then the material forces that are operative. And so in his own lifetime, coming to your second question, this was a period of intense global class struggle in which World War II had happened, 27 million Soviets gave their lives defeating the Nazi war machine. Communism was on the rise. You had communist revolutions you know, in North Korea and China. And then in 1959, it comes to the Western hemisphere with Cuba and the list goes on. And you have an enormous uptick in US imperial interventions where you have a minimum of what 50 foreign countries that the United States has tried to overthrow since World War II, uh, the majority of which were democratically elected and Foucault, who says we should be specific intellectuals who focus on the microphysics of power in you know, our immediate institutions in many cases, that's what he highlights. I mean, it depends on what aspect of his work we're talking about, right? Uh, he can go to different extremes and there was a moment of kind of Marxian 
vaguely Marxian, almost more anarchist radicalization in the wake of 68 that I'd be happy to talk about. But in general, Foucault was not interested in giving an account of imperialism, even though it was on his doorstep, right? The Algerian war was, was one of the bloodiest conflagrations and he was kind of just hands off. He was going to the library and making up histories that didn't accord with the dominant historical materialist histories and was very explicitly anti-Marxist. In 1966, 1967, he really directly claims that Marxism is a philosophy of the 19th century, and it's like a fish out of water in the 20th century. So it's not only that he ignores global imperialism for the most part, but then also the anti-colonial struggles that are rooted in the Marxist tradition, he just throws out completely. And so these are very reactionary political positions to take, but that's not how he's marketed by the apparatus that we were talking about earlier. So most people don't know this. They know Foucault because they see an image of him as a bald guy with a megaphone and a leather jacket, and that's enough. It's literally just a logo, and they read Foucault with the sense that somehow he's a real radical. Um, and I'd be happy to talk in greater detail about specific political positions he took or just didn't take at all. Yeah, no, I, I think, I you know, because there's, I mean, there's the whole context, like you said, of um, what's going on in terms of decolonization in the 60s and 70s when he's doing this academic work. But there's also the Western European context, which I think you've, you've mentioned in some of your other papers, where it's like, you know, this is one thing that, that's becoming like more and more clear to me with current events, um, you know, in, with the Russia-Ukraine war and what's happening with... Uh, with Germany and like the, the different stances that Western European countries are all take, like the way they're all lining up with the US and like the way Germany has, you know, basically sacrificing, they're in the process of sacrifice. I, we don't know how far it'll go, but it looks like they're in the process of sacrificing their own economic well-being for the US agenda, like they to buy US gas instead of cheaper Russian gas and and whatever other range of things they're going to give up over the course of this sanctions process. But like, to 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 understand how much influence the US actually wields over Western Europe, which we think of as very independent, and in some ways, like the parent where the US is the child. Um, that's not really the case, right? I mean, that like that's a big part of the story, which you also talk about in your work, where the U.S. actually has enormous influence over every aspect of life in Western Europe, including France, including Germany, including the U.K. And the kinds of, th I mean, the U.K. and the U.S. hard to separate, but one that system is actually exerting all kinds of influence. So you know, maybe we. Can you talk about that context too? Yeah, absolutely. And it might then eventually bring us to the US national security state because part of the context, as I mentioned earlier, I'm interested obviously in studying the work of specific cultural producers and reading them seriously, if it'd be Foucault or Derrida or other figures, but I'm not interested in isolating them from the larger social world and the intellectual apparatus within which they operate. And one thing that's extremely important to understand, if you want to understand French theory, and this is not what we're trained to do in the academy, right? We're trained to be specialists and be specific intellectuals, as Foucault would want us to be, uh, is to look at the cultural imperialism of the United States in the post-war era. And what happened is, you know, the United States was 
hesitant to enter World War II, in part because there was a conflict in the political elite between what side they'd enter on, um, right? Because there were a lot of Hitler supporters, including Alan Dulles, who would then later direct the CIA. And they decided to just do a bloodletting and assumed that the Nazi war machine was gonna destroy the Soviet Union because that's what they wanted. And that's what they tried to do themselves between 1918 and 1920 when they invaded the Soviet Union to strangle the red babe in its crib, as Winston Churchill said, with 13 other capitalist countries. That didn't happen because the Red Army orchestrated a world historical defeat of Nazism and started marching westward. That's when it became important for US imperial interests to intervene in Western Europe in order to make sure that it didn't go communist. And so in the immediate post-war era, you have a situation where the US military obviously intervened and so you have boots on the ground in Western Europe, but then they set up an entire cultural apparatus in order to oversee, you know, through the Marshall Fund and through CIA money to structure the major pillars of the Western European countries. If it be politically, socially, the labor unions, if it be intellectually, uh, if it be film uh, or other such things. Political parties, overthrowing regimes they don't like, false flag operations, bombings, that Operation Gladio. Operation Gladio is a great example of that, right? This is NATO's secret army, which people should be talking about more today, given all the discussions regarding NATO. Rehabilitating it, all the Nazis, Operation Paperclip. I mean, yeah. Tens of thousands of Nazis and fascists who were brought to the United States, who were given free passage to Latin America and elsewhere, who were propped up in the United States to run the intelligence services in countries like Germany. I mean, a, a Nazi general was became CIA, get, uh, Reinhard Galen, and then oversaw the intelligence services in Germany under, of course, the surveillance of the, the CIA. And so this is, you know, a very, very big part of that picture. And so coming back to the French intelligentsia, the goal, and Thomas Braden was one of the CIA operatives who oversaw these operations. And he actually spoke out quite clearly about it in an article that he published called this, uh, something like the CIA is immoral and I'm glad in the Saturday Evening Post. And he explained that the project in Western Europe at the level of cultural imperialism was, and it's quite smart when you think about it, smart in a really, you know, crass and conniving way, because they didn't, they propped up a lot of the right, of course, you know, the, the fascist forces that we're talking about and things like this, but they realized that the communists, particularly within France and Italy, were so strong. Everybody wanted to be a communist because the communists were the ones who defeated the Nazis, right? All the intellectuals, cultural producers, et cetera. People were literally reinventing themselves to present themselves as members of the resistance. And so the CIA project was to fund, support, and prop up what they called the non-communist left or the compatible left. These are the people who don't believe in actually existing socialism, who are the kind of rad libs and the radical recuperators who are gonna sound like the communists but actually are pro-capitalist and pro-imperialist. And so the CIA set up the Congress for Cultural Freedom, um, an enormous international organization with offices in 35 different countries. They were running dozens of prestige magazines. They ran a forum service, which is a press outlet. They were pumping the Kool-Aid out internationally in what Frank Wisner, another member and architect of the US national security state called the Mighty Wurlitzer. They wanted a system that could be centralized like a Wurlitzer, which is like a kind of jukebox machine 
where he could sit in Langley, Virginia at CIA headquarters and press a button and have whatever message they wanted to have played, played internationally in their press outlets and in their intellectual platforms. And you know, to come back to Ukraine, this is what's going on now. We see that the mighty Wurlitzer is in full swing. The media, the corporate media is in lockstep. And so the intellectuals that we were just talking about a moment ago are not somehow independent of this larger form of cultural imperialism and the intellectual apparatus. On the contrary, many of them work directly for some of these organizations or published in them in various ways. So the Frankfurt School of Critical Theory, Theodore Adorno, he was publishing in CIA journals in Der Monat. Uh, Max Horkheimer, Hannah Arendt, they were invited to CIA conferences and went and went to these junkets and were very well paid to do that because the positions that they were taking were in the interests of US imperialism and its cultural imperialism, right? So that larger contextualization, which I could say a lot more about, but I feel like I've been talking a bit, is really important for understanding the specificity of these theorists. Otherwise, what we do is what we're encouraged to do in the academy is just have a one-to-one, -one, almost epiphany-like relationship between the text that's isolated from everything in our own personal subjective experience, which is bourgeois ideology, right? The freedom of the individual and the consumer product that's before them, but you never ask about the system, how that consumer product is packaged. There's never a critique of what I call the global theory industry. But it's also like, um, you know, if by getting the left, it's so smart because it's just like these young people like you or me who are like, getting into reading stuff and they're like, okay, well, I don't identify with the right at all. I think this, you know, fighting uh, for the, for the little guy, you know, I think that, that uh, oppression is bad. I want to work, I want to work with the, these kinds of people. And then you're, you're slapped with, you know, Trotsky and Arendt and totalitarianism and all these ideas of like, well, if you go too far to the left, it's bad. You know, it's just as bad. You you know, Stalin's just as bad as Hitler. And exactly. there's, there's all this stuff to, to kind of make sure that you don't, uh, you don't get it. Like you, you don't, you don't really get what really happened. Um, and, and the other thing I want to like move to is, um, you know, you, you talk about because when when you talk about the Congress for Cultural Freedom, you know, it's kind of like the core of this this uh, discussion or like what I was thinking of titling this is like, are your favorite academic theorists really CIA spooks? But it's like, you know, you have this thing where you're like, there's a wrong way of looking at it, which is it's not that the CIA is pulling the strings of, of your favorite theorist and like hey Foucault write this hey Derrida write that hey Hannah Arendt write this and like pulling these strings but rather you you talk about it as like it's not a puppeteer but it's um like a puppet theater or something so can you talk about like how it's how it's more it's actually worse which makes it worse actually <laughs> yeah more terrifying um yeah and and I guess I would just say maybe we'll come back to this in a little bit but the dominant image that people have of the CIA is, at least within the Western world, tends to be the, an image of the CIA that's largely actually produced in various ways by the CIA due to the extent of involvement of the Central Intelligence Agency and other agencies of the national security state in cultural production. And if it be James Bond's films, if it be Mission Impossible or other such things, TV shows, you know, 24, et cetera, 
these are products of the US national security state. And there's excellent scholarship on precisely that front. And it produces this idea of, you know, the James Bond character with all the gadgets and the sexy women and on and on and on. What it doesn't do is allow you to understand how the CIA actually works. And Ralph McGee, who's a former member of the CIA, wrote in his kind of account of his experience in the CIA, he said that, you know, what the CIA principally is, is it doesn't principally gather intelligence. Its primary function is that it is the covert arm of the US government. And so its primary function is disinformation and controlling the minds of the masses and doing covert operations kind of behind the scenes as well, you know, the kind of bloody covert operations, but then there's also all the media, cultural and intellectual interventions that they're involved in. Working with thousands of academics, according to the church committee, right? So this isn't a small enterprise. And so I agree that the Congress for Cultural Freedom is a centerpiece, but the tentacles are quite uh, expansive. So then coming to the metaphor of the marionette theater, this is what they do, right? They don't literally drop off a briefcase at Hannah Arendt's office. And I mean, they did invite her to junkets and they did correspond. Yeah, uh, they sometimes her. do that stuff too. Yeah. yeah, they sometimes do. And Arendt is, I've been to the Arendt archive and she, you know, really enjoyed being wined and dined in Switzerland and getting foundation money and doing other such things. And in fact, the origins of totalitarianism, she received funding and support from the foreign office in, in Great Britain. And so it's a national security product, uh, if you will. Uh, so, yeah, they do both things, but <laughs> the primary orientation that they have is they build the marionette theater in the sense that they control and fund the cultural and intellectual apparatus, and then they make the marionettes come of their own accord. Because as we all know, to come back to the image that you were sharing earlier, you know, both of us were bright young minds looking to figure things out. Well, what are you going to do? Are you going to go to the street corner where there's some crazy guy yelling about Lenin? Or are you going to go to the prestige institutions and study the premier cultural and intellectual products that are everywhere on offer? Well, unfortunately, for my sake, I, I probably should have gone and listened to the guy on the soapbox. Mind you, in I, Toronto, the people with the papers are Trotskyists anyway. <laughs> oh, OK. Well, there you go. There might be. Yeah, there's, there's misleading information in a lot of different places. Um, but the, the control of the intellectual and cultural apparatus makes a lot of sense because then you get plausible deniability and you have the people who are in the apparatus are there because they want to be it, in it and they believe in it. And a lot of them aren't forced to do it. So uh, one of the uh, images that some CIA officers talk about running agents is they say that you always have them on a leash, but a good agent is on a leash that's long enough that they don't even know. And that's the majority of academics and a lot of cultural producers is that they're working within an apparatus that's controlled by the powers that be. They're not aware of it because they never really come into conflict with it because what they have on offer and what they're doing and what they're providing with their cultural products is precisely what the apparatus wants. So it's a much better system because you have a marionette theater with no strings, right? You have the marionettes who are chugging along and what they wanna do is advance, they wanna get more and more distinguished degrees. They wanna get invited to the junkets. They wanna give keynotes and all of that. And that system works extremely well. Uh, and it, we should understand as well that this is a manifestation of the superstructure. And it's one of the ways in which this terminology I think is helpful is that the intellectual apparatus is a key component of what Marx and Engels called the superstructure, right? And these are institutionalized mechanisms 
that format social consciousness. If you want to ideologize people, you need to control the institutions that are structured in order to do that. The schools, the press outlets, the churches, the, uh, the unions for that matter, and other such things. Yeah. And, but I, the other thing, I, maybe the last kind of discussion uh, that I want to have, which is not short, but I wanted to talk a little bit about like science. Cause again, like turning this in a biographical direction, like I got the sense from my family, you know, that like, you can, you can do politics, like you can do whatever you want for, for, you know, if that's, if that's your, you know, if your conscience calls you to do it, but like, you should learn something real and valuable, like learn some science or engineering or something. And, and then, you know, you can do this on the side kind of thing. Yeah. And, you know, that's a part of the idea that wasn't like, my parents just got that idea out of nowhere. <laughs> you know, that's, uh, you know, that's something that's also put into our society that, you know, the so-called STEM, you know, yes. science, technology, engineering, and math, which I have my own problem with STEM because I'm like, it's all just science. There's no, the T, E, and the M are all science. Just say science. But anyway, the idea is that like natural science matters. Um, social science is a career dead end. It's a waste of your parents' money, but the the most powerful you know, the, the arm, the covert arm of the U.S. empire uh, disagrees, right? I mean, you, we've, you've, you were saying that you found that, like, the CIA thinks that social science and, and academics is actually really important. Yeah, crucially important uh, in a few different ways. One is that the professional managerial class in the intelligentsia is tasked with developing new and more sophisticated forms of ideology so that the capitalist ruling class can continue to rule by consent or primarily or principally by consent, at least domestically, because obviously internationally, that's not the case. Um, and obviously there's a lot of repression within the United States with police killing, mass incarceration and other such things, but they can at least rule one segment of the population by, by consent. And so they need uh, intellectual production. In fact, one of the things that's fascinating about the CIA is there's a lot of internal documents that say very explicitly that the primary war is the war for hearts and minds. And at one level, this makes sense because it's a cost benefit analysis. As surprising as it is under capitalism, it is actually um, beneficial at the cost level to rule by consent compared to rule by repression because you have to beat people up, you have to kill them, that takes time, it takes energy and other such things. And if you can just flog them over the head, then it's much, much, uh, well, in certain cases, it's, it's better. And that aspect of, of imperialism is you know, related to what we were talking about earlier in the sense that you have to produce a set of really trendy and interesting ideas that are intricate and sophisticated but don't actually explain how the world works. And you want everybody to be attracted to those ideas, to study them deeply and have to study them for years and years and learn foreign languages and entire canons and other such things so that they're devoid of materialist analysis, right? And so the form of both STEM and humanities that are on offer are those that don't allow us to analyze and see the social totality. And that's why historical, marks, uh, historical materialism has largely been excluded from the capitalist academy and denigrated because historical materialism is a single science that looks at how everything fits together, 
how science is related to economics, is related to politics, et cetera. And so there's no isolated siloing of particular disciplines and particular intellectual uh, endeavors. And what the system that exists wants is they want to produce the next worker bees, right? If they be the new engineers, the new scientists, et cetera. But they don't want engineers and scientists who understand that the CDC is guided by moneyed interests, which it obviously is. It re, you know, revamps its guidelines based on capitalist imperatives and what the political elite tells them to do. But they don't want scientists like that. They want or people- who, Or who ask, or who ask, hey, is it a good idea to have bioweapons labs in Ukraine <laughs> right now? Yeah. Is that a good idea? Maybe yeah. a biologist asking that. But yeah, I want to give you like the last word on this particular question of the importance of, of this type of work where you say, you know, um, if some presume that intellectuals are powerless, that our political orientations do not matter, uh, the organization that has been one of the most potent power brokers in contemporary world politics does not agree. The CIA believes in the power of intelligence and theory, and we should take this very seriously in falsely presuming that intellectual work has little or no traction in the real world. We not only misrepresent the practical implications of theoretical labor, but we also uh, run the risk of dangerously turning a blind eye to political projects for which we can easily become the unwitting cultural ambassadors. And that's like so much of what's going on, I think, is like a lot of semi-witting or unwitting cultural ambassadorship for, for this kind of stuff. Um, no, absolutely, yeah. because it's the lingua franca of yeah. the academy. And if it be anti-communism on the one hand as the kind of dominant ideology, or the constant, at least within the humanities, transcending discourses that come up yeah. that are just further reiterations of something, you know, a discourse of difference, of radicality and other such yeah. things, yeah. then uh, unwitting agents, I think, is, is the exact name for it, because people are just continuing to be vehicles for what the intellectual apparatus wants to pump out. Yeah. And it's at that level that, yeah, there's an enormous investment in intellectual and cultural production on the part of organizations like the Central Intelligence Agency and other elements in the national security state. They believe in ideas and they believe in culture because it's a way of formatting social consciousness, right? And I should maybe add to that, that uh, in hearing my own words read back to me, I, I think to myself, well, there's the risk in that position of sounding like the real struggle then is the struggle to get our ideas right. And given, as I said earlier, that I'm a materialist, not an idealist, I'm not suggesting and certainly don't want to suggest that, well, ideas can save us and we just have to get the right ideas and get them to the right people and then we'll all have enlightenment and the world will be better. No, the base drives the superstructure. We have to reconfigure the social relations of production. And in order to do that, we have to practically intervene. Uh, we have to build structures, organizations, parties that enable us to do that, et cetera. But uh, part of that project is one of, of cultural transformation as well. And so one of the things that we're lacking in the capitalist world is a really developed cultural left that can nurture young minds like our own and the stories that we were sharing earlier so that we can go to cultural centers and bookstores and, um, and film screenings and art shows that actually are legitimately <laughs> leftist rather than the kind of faux radicalism and woke cultural products that are currently on offer. And that won't get us 
all the way to where we need to be, but it will go a long way to at least um, opening people up to different uh, modes of social organization and recognizing that the way you overcome capitalism is not through reforms and through small changes, it's by changing the economic base and transforming it so that it is socialist, so that you socialize the values produced by workers and you guarantee universal healthcare, education, housing, right to work, uh, respect for the environment is very, very important and cultural flourishing. Cultural flourishing is essential to the socialist project. And what my recent work has, or what I've been engaging in in my recent work is what a socialist apparatus of cultural production looks like, right? When it's not about indoctrinating people and pursuing an imperialist project, it's about bringing the masses into cultural production, educating people, everyone to be creative in their labor so that you don't just have the stultified masses and the few Damien Hirst and Jeff Koons who get to make a lot of money making pretty crummy art, expressing you know, their creativity within the cultural apparatus. And so there's a lot more that I could say about that, but that has to be on our radar, right? It's not just that we're gonna differentiate ourselves from the dominant cultural apparatus. We actually have to build a socialist cultural apparatus and get plugged into the social, socialist cultural apparatus that is already operative in the world. Yeah, that's really good. I guess, um, you know, that's, that's like, because in a way you're, you've been working on kind of turning the turning this materialist analysis on uh, academic work itself, like, where do these ideas come from? And why are they promoted in the way that they are? And why do we hear this person instead of that person or these ideas so much? Uh, amplified instead of others and then turns out to be the CIA or <laughs> like CIA might like there are some crude uh, you know again like stranger than fiction answers to a lot of these things but I guess the last thing um, the last thing I wanted to say because you've said a lot of really good stuff about um, the kind of infrastructure or you call it an apparatus but like the kind of intellectual infrastructure that we need to think about uh, especially if we're in this you know, in this sphere, like whether whatever you're an academic or a writer, you're a YouTuber, you know, you're yeah. a, you're a twi tweeter, you know, yeah. like this is you're all part of this, and and you use this phrase that I really like. You, we need to create echo chambers of critical intelligence, um, a culture of radical leftism with a broad institutional framework of support, extensive public backing prevalent media clout and expansive power of mobilization. So that's like a, that's like a mandate, right? I mean, that's a lot to aspire to, but there was some hints in what you said earlier about the kind of theory that you are into now, right? And so, you know, I was, I was talking to my spouse about how I was going to talk to you before and, and she's not a big fan of Foucault either. Um, and she was like, listen, the trouble is if you guys get into, um, if you get into the specifics of Foucault, Foucaultians will be like, that's not what Foucault says anyway. Uh, you know, so whatever specific claim you make, they'll be like, no, that's, you guys are misreading uh, Foucault. Clearly Foucault is radical or whatever. Foucault's whatever you want him to be. But, um, you know, how do you think about how we should read these things? Should we, you know, finite time, there's only so much time uh, in the world, but like, if you are trying to educate yourself, um, you know, how do you go about it? What, what standpoint do you think is a good one now? What starting point is a good one? Um, 
you know, from the point of view of this type of education, maybe self-education, maybe you're a teacher watching this. Um, you know, I know a lot of teachers listen to my podcast uh, on history. Um, so, you know, how do you, how do you approach it now? Like now that you've gone through all this and gone over and have a sense of, of what produced, what in, went into the production of these theories? Um, where do you, where do you, where do you stand now? Let me uh, just back up for one sec, because one thing that you said earlier is important, and that is that, so the Central Intelligence Agency has been involved in the intellectual and cultural apparatus, but so have the foundations and the corporatocracy, right? So there's not a kind of one-to-one -one relationship. There's an entire web of capitalist interests and covert operations that, that control these mechanisms. And I could say a lot more about that, but I just wanted to highlight it. And I also wanted to add that in developing an alternative apparatus, you know, part of my own intellectual energy, and given the fact that you're giving that you've been running this podcast for so long, I take it part of your own intellectual energy has been put into not just individual cultural production, but creating platforms for sharing ideas, for getting voices out there. And so the critical theory workshop or the Atelier de Theorie Critique that I run is part of that, the Radical Education Department or RED. I'm part of the Collective of Liberation School. So I'm a big believer in developing our own apparatus and this being integral to our intellectual work. It's not just my you know, personal products that I'm pumping out there with my writing. I'm part of a collective that is trying to move the needle. And we can do it a lot better if we work together instead of just individually as we're trained to do. Regarding the things that I'm reading now and, and how that relates to the things that I was reading when in, in the 90s, I guess I would say two things. Well, one is to first respond to the uh, high, the problem that your partner saw with going into Foucaultian specificities. I've had a number of articles that are slander articles that have been published against me that basically say that I don't know Foucault, that actually there's this really intricate thing that Rock Hill has left out. I think it's laughable and kind of embarrassing that, and I actually put this in that original article that what there's a, there's a circle of Foucaultians with an initiated discourse that I know from the inside. I mean, I wrote a 500 page book in French that deals with Foucault and what Foucault is analyzing. And if these critics wanna take me seriously, then they should go and read it, but they don't. They don't engage with my deep scholarship on Foucault and how I've pointed out that he misread Nietzsche, he misread Descartes, he misread Kant, and I spell it all out line by line. Nobody deals with those critiques. They just wanna throw me out by doing a kind of standard anti-communist ideology, circle the Foucaultian wagons. I could see it coming from a mile away. It's really pathetic. And I wish that people would engage both with the Foucault scholarship and with the larger issues that I'm addressing, which is the cultural imperialism that we were talking about earlier. So to finally come to the uh, last part of your question, I think that historical materialism is a science that is explaining how the world works and giving us tools to transform the world and make it a more just and egalitarian place. And when you read historical materialists, they are crystal clear because they're trying to understand the world and contribute to a collective project of exiting capitalism. So I would encourage your listeners and viewers to read people like Michael Parenti, who's crystal clear, Domenico Lasorda, crystal clear, uh, Annie Lacquaris, if you happen to read in French, uh, she's very, very clear. Jack Powell's excellent historian will give you a sense of what World War I was, what World War II was. 
you know, there's there's a lot of other figures who I could uh, who I could list. Eduardo Galliano is a titan, right? Um, VJ Prashad, you just had on your show not that long ago, right? There's a lot well, of defending reading. defending him from the same kind of stuff from right? being a tanky, right? Yeah, tanky. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And so I would encourage everybody yes, to tap into historical materialism and know that the traditions of historical materialism are not dogmatic, are not closed. It's a dynamic, ongoing science that is fallibilistic. It's based yeah. on bringing the evidence in and trying yeah. to explain it. And if it's not well explained, then changing the framework of analysis. Right. So people should read Lenin and Ho Chi right. Minh yeah. and yeah. Mao and Engels and Marx and you know I could go on. Yeah. Um, but it's the richest tradition that explains how things actually operate in the world and give us tools for uh, leveraging power in the direction of a more egalitarian world. All right, Gabriel Rockhill, that is a that I don't want to go past that. That's a good ending uh, for this one. Thank you so much. Great. Well, thank you for having me on. It's a pleasure.